Was Paul cowed? Was he overawed? Think again of the coming of Agrippa and the military people and the citizens and uh, uh, quite a big assembly and the importance of Agrippa. He was a powerful man. Was he overawed? I don't think he was as we read this chapter, was he? Paul wasn't ashamed that he was a prisoner. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel. And he wasn't overawed by these powerful leaders. And this trial is the most detailed of the three uh, under the uh, aegis of the Roman Empire that he has to endure. It's only a summary of what actually happened. I mean, what did it take us? A few minutes to read it? But it took a lot longer than that for it all to happen. We're going to look at it this morning from the point of view of three men. The three men in the story. The Apostle Paul, Felix, and Agrippa. Let's start with Paul. Paul gives his, uh, a sketch of his testimony and, and what he was used to be like. He said, I was brought up in Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel. He said, I was a strict Pharisee. And we know from the Gospels some of the ways that the Pharisees disciplined their lives. And his accusers <coughs> knew all of this. So why was he in court? <coughs> he said, the reason I'm in court is because of my belief and my teaching about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he makes reference to the resurrection. Why should any of you think it strange that God should raise the dead? Hmm. His alleged crime, therefore, was not political, but it had to do with the religion of the Jews. Felix, that first governor, he'd known that. Festus discovered it too. And uh, Agrippa was going to see it as well. Paul talks about his past life. He said, I was a persecutor of Christians. He said, I opposed the name of Jesus of Nazareth even in Jerusalem. I got these Christians imprisoned and I even voted for them to be put to death. And we see a little window on the early chapters of Acts. It's not mentioned like that, but this is the kind of persecution those very early Christians faced. Paul said he was in a, a raging fury. He said, I was, I was implacable and vicious. I even went to other cities. I was determined to get rid of these Christians. A little bit like the same attitude as uh, Hitler used to display. Thank you. Implacable, not satisfied. And the chief priests, the leaders of the Jews, they were right behind him. And uh, they were encouraging him and gave him even the authority to go to Damascus. And then he says, you, you need to understand what happened to me when I was going to Damascus. And he describes this, which is something absolutely unique. There's never been another conversion quite like it. And it was totally unexpected. He, he knew what he was going to Damascus to do. And he had all these plans, people he was going to see and enlist on in his side. All of these things, totally unexpected. The Lord comes and arrests him and stops him. It was very humbling. This 
bright light came as if from the presence of God and it struck him down and all the others that were with him. It was life-changing. He came to see that he'd been completely wrong hitherto. And it really did turn him around. He had a, a new commission. No longer was he to be in opposition to this Jesus. He was to serve him. No longer was he to persecute the church. He was to be a church planter. And in particular, he was to go to the Gentiles. Look, he's saying, you see what happened to me? And that's what I've been doing. And it's because of my preaching to the Gentiles that the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, are so accusing me. Listen, Agrippa, he says, my message is just to explain what the prophets and Moses said was going to happen, that the Messiah must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, both to our people, the Jews, and also to the Gentiles. Through this Jesus, crucified and risen, God forgives sins. Couldn't be much plainer, could he? And Paul absolutely gloried in what God had done for him. He never got past all that that conversion experience taught him. He knew he was a most unlikely Christian, <laughs> certainly a very unlikely apostle, totally undeserving, full of demerits, offensive to God. And he said elsewhere to the Corinthians, I don't deserve to be an apostle, but I am what I am by the grace of God. This was always with him. He changed my life. He turned me around. To this day, God has been helping me to live for him. This is, this is Paul. He's really opening up his heart and his mind here. But uh, you know, this is true for us all. We owe our standing as Christians to God's grace, God's kindness. We may not have been a persecutor like Paul, but all of us have fallen short. Paul tells us we're all in the category of enemies of God by nature. Paul was a Jew, the offspring of Abraham, one of the chosen people. Blameless, he said, as regards keeping the law, zealous, disciplined, the Pharisee. You know, I doubt if any of us have been so religiously disciplined as the Apostle War. Paul was in that early life. But later on he wrote, I don't have any confidence in the flesh. That is my old way of living. All of those things that I thought were gain to me and important to me, uh, they're worthless. They're like so much done. Hmm. And Paul saw he had to leave all of that. His only hope was in the death 
and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He never got past that. And it's true for us. We need the reminder that we can't inherit, we can't merit or deserve God's favor. We can't by our efforts achieve the forgiveness of sins, can we? We can't be called a child of God by any other way than by the grace of God. We can't even merit God's attention. God said, well, it's a likely person. I'll have a try at him. God laid hold of the most unlikely person. We cannot earn God's attention. We are dependent upon his grace. We're not even saying, oh God, you can see all my efforts at changing and living a good life. Now, would you top me up? What I can't do, would you just do the rest? (laughs) doesn't work like that. We are dependent on God's grace in the Jesus. And no matter how long we have been Christians, we never get past that. We are always dependent on the grace of God. Not half dependent. Entirely dependent on the grace of God. Mm. We continue in the way that we started. That was Paul. Now Festus interrupts. Festus had set this whole thing up. He wanted some reason to send Paul to Caesar. Paul had appealed to Caesar. He had to go. That couldn't be changed. But what was he going to say when he sent him to Rome? And so the coming of Agrippa, ah, we'll find something now with Agrippa. So he, all he wanted out of this uh, hearing was to get a clear charge that could be attached to Paul. He was a Roman governor. He had authority power, he was respected, but he was really Roman in his outlook. These religious squabbles among the Jews were all a bit weird to him. He saw himself as a, as a straightforward, practical man, a man of status. He knows Paul is not an ignorant man. In fact, he recognizes Paul as a scholar. But it seems to him that that Paul's learning has really driven him mad. He's out of his mind. You don't know what you're saying. Paul, it's all nonsense. Stop! That's Festus. And Paul replies in a very respectful way, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am seeking true and reasonable words. Agrippa knows about these things. Ah, Agrippa. Agrippa was still a comparatively young man, probably around the age of 37. He was the last of the Herodian dynasty of five kings, all appointed by Rome. He was a great-grandson of Herod the Great, uh, who... uh, Murdered all the little boys when Jesus was born. Agrippa never married. His relationship with his sister, Bernice, was the 
subject of much rumor and suspicion. He was educated in Rome, but he was an expert in Jewish affairs, and as king, his responsibility included the appointing of the high priest, and he oversaw the finances of the temple. So he was well acquainted with Jewish things, which is why Paul was very glad of the opportunity at this particular hearing. And although he was a Roman king, appointed by the Romans, his Jewish sympathies were very strong. He did all he could to help the Jews. But he was considered a very important man, both by Jews and by Gentiles, a man of real status. And the pomp and ceremony with which he'd come into the court, well, they were not unexpected. This was the kind of honor that he was supposed to receive. Someone has summed it up like this. Agrippa was a Jewish king, a Roman sympathizer, and a man of questionable moral reputation. That was Agrippa. And this is the man that Paul turns to now. Hmm? Says to Festus, Agrippa knows about these things. Now we're not told what Agrippa was thinking about all of this, but clearly I think he was listening quite hard to all that Paul was saying, because he knew the Jewish background. And it is as if Paul is saying, look, Festus, you don't really understand these things, but Agrippa does. Hmm? Perhaps he was hoping Agrippa was going to say something to help him. He said, the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. What's he talking about? He's talking about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He knows about these things, says Paul. Just like Felix, he was acquainted with the way, the truth that Christians taught and believe. And Herod too knew it. There was, this was no secret amongst the Jews. And Paul goes on to say to Agrippa, look, my message that I teach, it's, it's in line with the prophets and what Moses taught. I, I'm not some weird teaching. And then he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Hmm. Don't you see I'm right, says Paul. And Agrippa fends him off with a sarcastic reply. Huh? Do you think in such a short time you're going to persuade me to be a Christian? Do you think you can persuade me so quickly to join this sect that everyone despises? Hmm. He felt the force of Port's arguments. That's very clear. He understood the Old Testament. He knew about the life of Jesus, his death, his resurrection. And here Paul is really presenting these things up to him again. And he felt the force of the argument. He knew where it was leading. But there was no way that he was prepared to go down that road. So he mocks Paul, gives him a put down. You can't convert me so easily or so quickly. 
I'm King Agrippa, he says in effect. I'm King of the Jews. You can't expect me to join your lot. And Paul's response? I think probably he lifted up his hand again and maybe he lifted up both again so that they could see his chains. And he said, Would to God that all who hear me this day might be such as I am except for these chains. Hmm. Worth everything. Agrippa has had enough. Hmm. It's got too personal. It's begun to get to him. It's uncomfortable. And so he ends the session. Afterwards, privately, they agree that Paul could have been set at liberty if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Such appeals couldn't be revoked. Paul had won his case before Agrippa, really, but he still had to go to Rome. Well, what can we say to this chapter? There was one thing that Agrippa got right. It was this. He realized that Christianity was not a hobby. It's not something you can just take an interest in, study history or study psychology or whatever. Christianity, if it's anything, is life-changing. The facts of the gospel demand a response. And Paul was not just an academic theologian with a lot of theory and a lot of parchments and so on behind him. Yeah, he was a well-learned man, but he was much more than that. And he was doing more than defending himself. In defending, he was actually positively presenting the truth to Agrippa, and Agrippa didn't like it. If he admitted knowledge of these events about Jesus, and if he said, yes, well, I do believe the Old Testament, the implication is, what are you going to do about it, Agrippa? It was too personal. Paul was quite right. The events had not been done in a corner. People knew them. And we can't study Christianity as a a subject, something to speculate about. Uh, There was a book uh, popular a little while ago called Evidence Demands a Verdict. And uh, it was... uh, uh, giving all kinds of evidence in support of the gospel. Uh, and the, the point is, the man was saying, this isn't just evidence, it's evidence you have to do something about. It demands a verdict. And for Paul, the gospel was something vital, a matter of life and death. And that's how it came over whenever he spoke about it. He wasn't putting something on for a gripper. This was Paul. This was his life. Hmm. Looking back on his conversion experience, he, he didn't just see it as something, well, it was a sort of spiritual experience and it was quite valuable and I'll remember it, but it was a life-changing thing. He had to obey. 
And so he spoke. When God, in his grace, begins to open up to us the truth of his word, we begin to see things that we haven't seen before. And we begin to see how they all hang together. It demands a response from us. Paul uh, elsewhere has said that my, my policy is this. He said, I go around saying to people, be reconciled to God. Believe on his son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Mm. I beseech you, he said, be reconciled to God. Do it on his terms, not on the terms you think you might prefer. So many people have their own ideas about what might please God. We need to do it and approach him on God's terms. And there are people today that you, we could call rather passive church attenders. That is, they kind of have a, a passive acceptance of God's word. But it doesn't do much for them. I read in a totally different context this week, this little sentence. The acid test of what we believe is whether it changes our lives. You can ask yourself, do I really believe the gospel? Do I really believe what God has done in Christ for me? Do I believe this truth about the forgiveness of sins? Do I believe the truth about the life to come? Has it changed my life? That's the test of faith. It's possible, like Agrippa, to have a kind of faith, a kind of belief, but it's not genuine Christian belief. Both Festus and Agrippa rejected God's way. They weren't going to join the despised followers of the way. This was not the establishment view. It's not what people thought all around. And that's not confined to their day, is it? Today, in our own country, it's almost unbelievable. The new establishment view has to prevail. Publicly declare your belief in the truth of the Bible and what it teaches. An international rugby player loses his place on the team. A magistrate is thrown off the bench. A school teacher loses her job. A student thrown off his course. The students' union will try and banish Christians from the student union completely. We say the same as Paul said to Festus. I am speaking true and reasonable words. Christians today are speaking reasonably and logically, but they're being dismissed as old-fashioned, blinkered, mindless bigots, or they're held up to ridicule 
mocking. A load of nonsense, that's what Festus said. And uh, largely, that's the establishment view today we need to recognize. Now, probably no one here takes that view. But many of us do take after Festus. I've no time for that. You're mad. We encountered that view at work, sometimes amongst our families. Hmm? These Christians are all a bit odd, to say the least. They're not really right-thinking person. No person in their right mind would go along with that. Yeah, we encounter that. And then too, I think Agrippa had too much to lose. Like Agrippa, some don't dismiss God's word to us in the gospel as just a load of nonsense, but, well, they really, they have a bit too much to lose. Perhaps the good opinion of others. Agrippa would have thought, if I go along with this, I'm going to have a lot of trouble from the Jews. He would have said, what would Rome think if I, if I join in with this lot now? We might think of family. What will my family think? What uh, will my friends think? What will my work colleagues think? Will it affect promotion? I'm going to have to change some things in my life. My pleasure and uh, amusement. I'm going to have to make changes in my lifestyle. Oh, I don't want to get too serious about this. Hmm. It will change my life in ways I don't want. And how do we avoid the challenge of God's word? Just like a gripper. That's enough for now. That's the end of that session. And we might even say to ourselves, I'll think about it later. So, a Roman governor, a Jewish king, two important and foolish men, men of influence and power, people at their beck and call. People would have envied them, thought they were in a remarkable position. How good to be like them. Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The Christian way is not rubbish. It is not unthinking. Christians are not bigots. But a Christian knows it's not worth living for the establishment view of life. It's not worth refusing the promise of God for the sake even of family, friends, or colleagues, or anything else. Two powerful men. Not very wise. One despised prisoner. A brave man. Not afraid of his surroundings. And he'd written some years earlier, at the end, towards the end of his life, he said, For the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. Three notable men in this chapter. Who was successful in the end? Here's another question. Which one do you side with? Festus? It's all nonsense. Agrippa? Well, no more for now. Or Paul? We're going to sing our last song, and I just would like to introduce it beforehand. If you're